I guess I need to get my show notes here. Yay. Welcome to Mintcast, the podcast by the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. This is episode 390, recorded on Sunday, the 26th of June, 2022. From the left side of the tree, I'm Moss. Back home in Texas, I'm Joe. From the magical medieval kingdom of data protection and privacy laws, I'm Norbert. First up in the news, GNOME wins Microsoft money, Firefox translates offline, Rocky overtakes the Red Hat pack, apps on KDE look more clear, Debian gets the Gecko treatment, Zoom gets Wayland screen sharing, Photoshop is kind of but not really coming to Linux, and NVIDIA contributes. In security and privacy, Hertzbleed is coming for your CPU, and the EU is going after deepfakes. Then in our wanderings, Moscow's custom, Norbert emerges, and Joe is Florida man. In our innards section, we discuss the various licenses in the world of open source software. And finally, the feedback and a couple of suggestions. And now the news. Norbert? The GNOME project wins Microsoft FOSS fund. This is from Twitter, uh, tweeted by Emma Irvin and from Microsoft's GitHub. The Microsoft FOSS Fund provides a direct way for, for Microsoft, uh, and uh, Moss is editing the text, and his uh, name tag just blocked out the text that I'm trying to read. The Microsoft FOSS Fund provides a direct way for Microsoft engineers to participate in the nomination and selection process to help communities and projects they are passionate about. The FOSS Fund provides $10,000 sponsorships to open source projects as, as selected by Microsoft employees. To help drive an open contribution culture across Microsoft, employees are eligible to select projects for the fund when they participate in projects that are not governed by Microsoft. If we go to the GitHub page, we see that this is a monthly uh, fund. So for May 2022, it was GNOME. In April, it was Systemd and Leaflet. And uh, so such projects as Curl, and the QEMU, it's been going on since 2020, apparently. Okay, Mozilla made a Firefox plugin for offline translation. Mozilla has created a translation plugin for Firefox that works offline. Firefox translations will need to download some files the first time you convert text in a specific language. However, it will be able to use your system's resources to handle this translation rather than sending the information to a data center for cloud processing. The plugin emerged as a result of Mozilla's work with the European Union-funded project Bergamot. The goal was to develop neural machine tools to help Mozilla create an offline translation option. The engine's language models and in-page translation algorithms would need to reside and be executed entirely in the user's computer. So none of the data would be sent to the cloud, making it entirely private, Mozilla said. One of the big limitations of the plugin, as things stand, is that it can only handle translations between English and 12 other languages. According to TechCrunch, for now, Firefox translation supports Spanish, Bulgarian, Czech, Estonian, German, Icelandic, Italian, Norwegian, Bokmal, and Ninorsk. Persian, Portuguese, and Russian. For the time being, though, the plugin can't hold a candle to the 133 languages that Google Translate supports. 
Apple and Google both have mobile apps that can handle offline translations as well. I'm wondering if you, because in Google, in the Google Translate app, you can download languages for offline translation. I wonder how this would compare to that, because when you translate online with Google, obviously it has uh, access to a lot more uh, resources, a lot bigger database. Well, I noticed that when when they tell you that you've got the plugin and you need to enable it, then your browser starts crawling and you pick your settings and you can't really do anything. So your best bet is to close it and reopen and then everything works. So it's okay that it keeps working, but you will probably need to restart your browser. Okay, Rocky Linux shoots ahead from Pharonix. Statistics published by Fedora for the Extra Packages for Enterprise Linux, EPEL, usage point to a recent surge in Rocky Linux usage, at least for those with EPEL enabled, and at least recently appears to surpass the usage for the likes of CentOS Steam, Stream. Okay. Alma Linux and even the RHEL usage with EPL enabled. Rocky Enterprise Software Foundation Project Manager Brian Clemens shared the recent EPEL statistics pointing to the recent uptick in Rocky Linux usage. Rocky Linux, as a reminder, is the RHEL downstream started after the announcement that CentOS Linux would cease and CentOS 8 go EOL in order to focus on Red Hat's new CentOS stream development approach. Rocky Linux gained initial notoriety with Gregory Kurtzer as the original CentOS founder having started it to pursue the original goals initially laid out by CentOS. It's been nearly one year to the day since the first Rocky Linux 8 GA release, and they are currently working on their Rocky Linux 9.0 release, coming soon. Oracle Linux remains at the rear of the pack, according to EPEL statistics. So what about KDE, Norbert? This week in KDE... Non-blurry XBLAND apps. This is from the KDE developer Nate Graham's blog. Plasma 5.26 will resolve a major pain point for Wayland users with high DPI screens. You'll now be able to choose how you want your XBLAND apps to be scaled, either by the compositor, ensuring uniform scaling but blurriness. This is the status quo. I've actually experienced the same thing when I was running non-Wayland and non-GTK apps. For example, VSE was blurry. On fractional when using fractional scaling, and the other option is the new option is uh, so scaling is handled by the apps themselves, allowing them to use their pre-existing X11 high DPI capabilities if they have them, but leaving apps without such capabilities at the wrong scale. I think this is something very similar to what in the what uh, Elementary OS does, where uh, Elementary OS uh, Leo said that it's not real scaling it's just it just it just increases the font size and all the elements sort of uh, follow that so it says so if all the XBLAND apps you are you support high dpi scaling properly on x11 you can use this new setting to make them look nice and crisp at your chosen scale factor so yeah basically uh, what i assumed so apps that are valent native should all work perfectly when it comes to scaling right at least that's my experience and this is only a problem with uh, apps that are not able to run natively on Wayland. I mean, when I, when I see Wayland created news, I always get excited because uh, I will talk about uh, this a bit more in my wanderings, but uh, at this point I'm all in on, on uh, uh, switching to Wayland as soon as possible. Spiral Linux is Debian in the same way Gecko is OpenSUSE. 
from the register. The anonymous, the anonymous person who created Gecko has struck again, this time applying his skills to Debian. You get a live image to boot into. You get the most minimal non-free drivers such as Wi-Fi. You get ButterFS configured with both compression Fedora style and automatic snapshots OpenSUSE style, including for the kernel. You get improved font rendering. You get Flatpak support complete with the GNOME software app even on non-GNOME installations. Along with extra drivers, the Debian non-free repositories are pre-configured, so more hardware will work out of the box, including virtual box guest support and HP printers and scanners, and they'll get updates in the future. Rather than a dedicated partition that uses a swap file on the root drive, plus ZRAM compressed swap for low memory machines. TLP is installed and configured for better laptop battery life too. But when it's all installed, you get the closest possible thing to pure Debian. I am vaguely interested in trying this out. Um, it does sound cool. I, I am the one that always uses Gecko when when someone says you should look at OpenSUSE. So <laughs> and Gecko is really, really close to OpenSUSE. But it sounds like Debian doesn't normally come with ButterFS on a automatic snapshots. So I'm not sure what, uh, how close you would be to pure Debian. I know that when you are using the net installer for Debian, you you can only have uh, sub-volumes even if during the installation you switch to a different TTY and do the partitioning manually. I have no idea about the uh, the live ISOs that have calamaris for Debian, whether they can do, uh, whether they can set up uh, the sub-volumes and snapshotting. Okay. Zoom Linux app supports screen sharing on Wayland from OMG Linux. Version 5.11.0 of Zoom's official Linux desktop client integrates with the correct Pipewire portal to support screen sharing from Linux users using the app on a Wayland desktop session. When clicking the Share Screen button in the Video Conferencing Services Linux client, a small dialog appears. This asks you to select a particular app window or your entire screen to share through the app. Yes, you could do it before, but now it's Linux native. Keep in mind that Zoom is free but not open-source software. Some features and capabilities may require a paid plan, though basic meetings which support screen sharing are available to free accounts. I literally just switched to using Zoom in a browser two weeks ago because of this exact reason. And now it's supported. <laughs> I, I will definitely try this in Sway, which uh, does uh, use that uh, the screen sharing portal. Things are getting interesting. I know that I managed to get Firefox uh, working with that screen sharing portal. So at that point, I can just, if I want to screen my share, I want to share my screen uh, in anything that runs inside Firefox, Zoom, Slack, Discord, anything, it will just work. But this is interesting. I mean, is there really a benefit of use from using Zoom in, in the native client rather than in the browser? Because... You can do everything in the browser. I don't know. Um, I have been I have been using the app when I need to use Zoom. I very rarely have to use Zoom, but when I do, it's kind of a pain on Wayland. Sometimes I just log into the Xbox session just to be able to share my screen. Adobe Photoshop for web is free for all now. This is from Fuzzbytes. Last year, a web version of Photoshop was released to do basic editing. 
Adobe is now testing a free-to-use version of Photoshop on, on of Photoshop for web. As a way of bringing more users to the app, uh, the company plans to open the service to everyone, requiring only a free Adobe account to use it. According to a report from The Verge, Adobe is now testing the free version in Canada. If we go by how Adobe describes it, they call it freemium. However, it still won't have some of the features that are strictly limited to the paying customers. Adobe has assured people that it will have enough tools to perform basic Photoshop editing, although Adobe still doesn't provide any timeline of on when the freemium version would launch for more people. Meanwhile, the company is constantly making Photoshop for web better by adding tools like Refine Edge, Curves, the Dodge and Burn tools, and the ability to, to convert smart objects. So my impression is that uh, this free version is mainly for just basic photo editing and not really doing uh, uh, making graphics and uh, graphics works and such. Works and such. NVIDIA lands AV1 VDPAU hardware acceleration in FFmpeg. This is also from Foronix. NVIDIA has contributed support to the FFmpeg multimedia library for being able to take advantage of AV1 GPU accelerated video decoding by way of the VDPAU API when using the latest generation NVIDIA RTX 30 Ampere GPUs. Since FFmpeg 4.4, there has been AV1 decode on NVIDIA GPUs via the NVDEC NVIDIA decode interface that is part of their video codec SDK. FFmpeg also supports Intel QSV accelerated decode. Windows DXVA2, D3, D11, VA, AV1 decode, and CPU-based decoding via the DAV1D project. AV1 encode is also supported with FFmpeg by way of Intel's SVT AV1. Now with FFmpeg Git AV1 VDPAU, Decode is in place for those preferring VDPAU to the newer NVDEC. Outside of the NVIDIA space, this AV1 VDPAU exposure may help the Mesa Gallium 3D drivers that support the VDPAU video acceleration state tracker as more GPUs begin having AV1 decode hardware blocks. And that was a bit of a mouthful. One second, I'm really sorry, Joe because I'm the culprit again. <laughs> and I quickly looked up what AV1 is. Uh, it says, it, Wikipedia said it's, it's an open royalty-free video coding format initially designed for video transmission over the internet. So initially this, uh, designed, so I assume it's used for more than that nowadays. I was just surprised that uh, NVIDIA contributed to FFmpeg. Is FFmpeg only used on Linux or is it uh, basically used on all platforms? I think it's used everywhere. I know nothing. Mm. <laughs> I, I noticed, you know, with Joe reading that uh, the last episode of uh, Full Circle Weekly News that I read, I, I went and listened to, and I go, gee, it sounds like I even know what I'm talking about. And I don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's the news. Let's move into security and privacy.
Insecurity and privacy. Hertzbleed is a new family of side channel attacks affecting Intel and AMD CPUs, making use of frequency side channels from Pharonix. Hertzbleed is self-described as, quote, Hertzbleed takes advantage of our experiments showing that, under certain circumstances, the dynamic frequency scaling of modern x86 processors depends on the data being processed. That This means that on modern processors, the same program can run at a different CPU frequency when computing. Hertzbleed is a real and practical threat to the security of cryptographic software. We have demonstrated how a clever attacker can use a novel chosen ciphertext attack against SIKE to perform full key extraction via remote timing, despite SIKE being implemented as constant time. First, Hertzbleed shows that on modern x86 CPUs, power side-channel attacks can be turned into even remote timing attacks, lifting the need for any power measurement interface. The cause is that, under circumstances, periodic CPU frequency adjustments depend on the current CPU power consumption, and these adjustments directly translate to execution time differences, as 1 Hz equals 1 cycle per second. Second, Hertzbleed shows that, even when implemented correctly as constant time, cryptographic code can still leak via remote timing analysis. The result is that current industry guidelines for how to write constant-time code, such as Intel's one, are insufficient to guarantee constant-time execution on modern processors, end quote. So basically, if if a malware can uh, monitor the power usage of the CPU, it can guess the, the, the clock speed, or I'm not sure if I understand this correctly. Sounds about right to me, but like I said, I don't understand these things. I assume it's the same thing with uh, as with uh, like with Spectre as just uh, extracting data from memory. Or maybe I'm wrong. Well, whether you're right or wrong, let's move on. The EU is asking Big Tech to go after deepfakes and fake accounts. This is from Fosbytes and also quoting Reuters. Deepfakes have become a common tool for spreading misinformation, however the EU is determined to put a stop to them. The EU is planning to update its code of practice to regulate the spread of this information. European Commission may publish the update code of practice on this information in the following week. Once done, tech giants like Meta, Google and others will have to comply with the code of practice or face fines. Reuters managed to get a copy of the proposed document that states Quote, relevant signatories will adopt, reinforce and implement clear policies regarding intermissible, impermissible manipulative behaviors and practices on their servers, based on the latest evidence of the conducts and techniques and procedures employed by malicious actors. Well, good luck with that. That, that's, that sounds like very uh, low jargon, maybe? Yeah. Well, Facebook has already admitted they don't know where their data is or where it goes. The data goes into the data soup. That's simple. Well, I guess a lot of companies are turning into soup miners. This seems like it's going to be an unenforceable policy. Well, the thing about deepfixes is that if they get to the level where they are not detectable, detectable. Then, then even if the companies wanted to uh, comply with this, they would have a hard time. 
I just recently heard about how Amazon will Echoes will have a feature where they can uh, imitate someone's voice after listening to only one a one minute recording of them, which is it's 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 also deep fake but with voice. It's it might be even worse than the uh, than the video deep fakes because if you have a deep fake of someone speaking but it's not the correct voice then it's not that uh, convincing but if you have a voice recording even a face uh, even a fake voice recording a deep fake one without a video people might be more uh, susceptible to those not to mention like a uh, uh, voice uh, uh, authentication services could be potentially be bypassed by these Sometimes I forget. Sometimes I forget that we're only at the beginning of the 21st century, and we th- <laughs> we, th- we think that we know what the 21st century is like, but we really don't. And these deep fakes might be one of the most uh, significant problems of the century. Well, that's our security and privacy for this episode. Basically, there is no security and privacy. So now we go into biweekly wanderings, and we always have enough of those. Well, I've completed my journey to Calyx OS on my Pixel phone, and my wife has begun hers. She is dragging her feet, though. We've got three phones, and two of them are on Calyx OS, and one of them's still an Android. And she still keeps using her Android phone, even though she says she wants to use the Calyx OS phone. I have two new laptop installations, the new LXQT rolling version of Open Mandriva and the latest KDE Neon, still based on 20.04. I posted video from my May concert at Atomicon in Charleston, South Carolina to my YouTube channel. Um, Parts of it also seem to be on my Odyssey channel. But Odyssey and I have been fighting lately. It seems to be, well, I seem to be winning, but uh, the fight continues. The sound is okay, but it would have been better had it not been for the fact that the convention's registration table was just outside the performance space with no door. So there's constant chatter on the side throughout. Even so, in the fact that I was not prepared for this concert, I didn't do too badly, and I hope the listeners concur. I was better before my accident and the loss of my teeth, but it's not bad for an old geezer. You can hear me fumbling with my teeth even as I talk now, because the bloody things just don't sit the way my mouth is used to working. I have, abli- I have applied to return to subbing at the local school district. Substitute teacher, they are running subs through a third-party company, which handles a few other districts in the state, and it feels a little bit less personal, but I'll see what I can do. My orientation meeting is Thursday. If you hear me getting arrested, it's because I'll be actually teaching the kids something that they're supposed to learn that's illegal in this state. All right. Um, well, I went to Florida for a week, and that kind of took up most of my time. I mean, even before I went to Florida, I saw to get ready to go to Florida and get the kids ready and to get the car ready and all the electronics ready. Um, I missed out on several podcasts due to familial, familial obligations and poor internet connections. So I basically missed two weeks worth of... Um, tilts and i was barely on the linux Lugcast, and i was barely on the saturday show for this and yeah that was fun um nothing unusual or 
overly interesting in the setup that I used there. I did work there for a week. More of the same than I normally do while traveling. I did start out using a physical KVM switch to go back and forth between my uh, gaming laptop and my tablet. Um, but I, I got tired of that quick and just started using Barrier again. It just, you know, allows me to move my mouse over to the side of the screen and move it to the next one. Um, my Dell Latitude 5290 is running Linux Mint. Um, it was great for most daily tasks, but the battery life is still a bit disappointing. Um, I would have to be back on a charger every two to three hours, depending on the task that I was doing. But considering that's like a laptop processor that's in it, that's probably still pretty good. And yeah, it was literally doing everything and, um, you know, sometimes with the keyboard, sometimes without the keyboard. Uh, I, I was doing a lot of interacting with files on my server at home using either SSHFX or uh, X2Go. Um, both were not as good as I have come to expect in the past, but some of that may have been due to how slow the internet connection was at my father's house on some occasions. I don't know if it was high traffic times or just spotty service, but it, it got pretty bad here and there. Um, also got a lot of use out of Plex and some of the things that uh, Plex is offering for free, including access to Crackle which is provided by Sony, and I, I've used it before. Sometimes there's good movies on there. Sometimes there's good TV shows on there. The only thing I don't like about their TV shows is that they only do, they only offer partial runs at a time. They don't offer, like, every episode from every season all at once. Um, I worked on a couple of laptops to get them running properly while I was out there. One of them was a bad hard drive, so that was an easy enough fix. I was able to get Mint to install on it, uh, but it was a laptop that I had previously given to my stepmom. It was an interesting fix that I had done before, where I had pulled the hard drive from an older laptop and moved it to that newer one. Um, it wasn't Windows machine, but I was using a, a small hard drive on it with a bootloader installed that pointed to the Windows partition because there was something wrong with the startup in the first place. Um, um, I know there was some other reason that I had done that, but I don't exactly remember what it was because it's been a couple of years. Um, all I ended up having to do was remove the faulty Windows hard drive and reinstall Mint on the other drive, and it works pretty well. Now I just need to actually find a use for it. Um, maybe Repetier? I don't know. The second laptop is an interesting problem. It, it runs, it turns on, and installed Mint easy enough, but it is overheating, like, a lot. I was monitoring temperatures, and they were shooting up into the 96-degree range, which is just way too hot. And evidently, at some time in the past, it had released some of the magic smoke that's kept on the inside. So it looks like, according to my research and what I know, that there's a blown capacitor that is causing the overheating. This should make it possible for me to find the bad cap and get a bit of practice with working on motherboards in that way. Um, so hopefully I can do more of that in the future. This 17-inch laptop, um, it's got an old, like, i5-450M in it. 
um, if that tells you roughly the age. But um, it, it, it only let out some of the magic smoke. It still turns on, it still works, it just overheats. So, um, <clears throat> I was also able to get some soldering done while I was in Florida. Several of my headsets got fixed. And I was able to try out a couple of things with some of the really low-cost headsets that I've been wanting to work with. Um, as in, I got one of them for $2.50 on clearance at Walmart. Um, the mod was not that difficult, but I'm still getting an intermittent cutout on both sides, despite the fact that I know that the soldering is good and the cables are well mounted. It could be an impedance issue, but I don't think so. Uh, I'm going to have to keep looking into it. Maybe shorten the cables, um, check the other ends, make sure everything's seated solid. Um, I also ordered a set of six low-cost headsets from eBay. And when they get here, I will be 3D designing a new casing for them and we'll give them better batteries and some modularity. And because there's six of them, I'll probably figure out different ways of modularity and, and getting what I like there. Uh, but I don't know yet how much modularity, but I do have some ideas and I have lots of batteries and connectors to play around with. So maybe I'll even make it so that I can slot a battery in there and pull it out and put the next one in if I need to. But that also means that I'll be building a charger for them, a separate charger for them as well. The hard part will be the 3D design and the prototyping. But um, once I have the interactive portions figured out in the design, that'll make things a whole lot easier. The buttons and the charging and how everything stays in place, then the rest of it should be relatively easy and I should be able to switch quickly to the next one once I have the first one figured out. And that's really what I've been up to. Norbert, how about you? I attended my cousin's wedding uh, I have three cousins, two of those are twins, and uh, with this wedding now, oh, both of them are married. And uh, it was held in a very small church, but it was also a very nice looking church. And I realized that uh, how much I prefer small churches compared to large churches. What's interesting is that uh, I'm I was raised in a... How is it in English? Reformant? Okay, so the Reformed Church. And uh, Protestant churches generally are have plain white walls. And this uh, this was a, a Catholic church, and I, I rarely go to Catholic churches or Catholic uh, masses. It's very different, and it was actually very nice. So I guess I... It somewhat uh, changed my preconception about uh, very, uh, very, uh, decora very decorative churches. And at the dinner after the ceremony, I when we went uh, to take our seats, I noticed that uh, at the tables, the napkins on the plates had a very interesting uh, arrangement. And if you open this link in the show notes, I think you can see why what uh, the napkins arrangement reminded me of. I'm bringing it up right now. There, it's on the stream. So what does it remind you of? Nothing. The Arch logo, oh, by the way. okay. It, uh, I sent it to a friend of mine who used to use Arch. He immediately got it. Uh, so yeah, maybe this means that my mind is thinking about Linux too much. You're turning into an Arch villain. Oh, yeah. Speaking of Arch, 
I was using something, but it wasn't Arch. <laughs> uh, after the, after in a few days after the wedding, I got sick, and for two or three days I had to stay in bed. And I uh, took the opportunity to finish watching Mr. Robot. Uh, so I finished the last season. It was very interesting, and uh, I recommend it to people even more. And now I'm rewatching Better Call Saul, which is a spin-off of Breaking Bad. The reason why I'm rewatching it is uh, the final season is uh, ending this uh, this summer, around the middle of August, and uh, I watched the first couple of seasons so long ago that I don't really remember what happened in those. So, but I remember that I really enjoyed it, and now I'm rewatching it and I'm enjoying it even more. On the Linux side of things, gentlemen. I have some very great uh, announcements. Uh, a few months ago I said that what I'm really waiting for is the day when I will be able to run the Sway Wayland window manager on my NVIDIA card with the proprietary NVIDIA drivers. And right now I'm reading the show notes on my computer with NVIDIA, with the proprietary drivers, and I'm on Sway and it's running surprisingly well. The only thing I haven't managed to figure out is switching up my mouse buttons because I'm using my mouse with my left hand. Uh, I found a couple of... So there has been a new NVIDIA release, the 515 drivers, and at, and, each, at the, uh, and after each NVIDIA release there are some discussions about the state of uh, support for Wayland, more specifically WR Roots-based uh, window managers, which are a completely different Wayland implementation than GNOME or KDE. And most of the guides I found to make it work were for Arch. So I fired up Arch and I found a package called Sway-NVIDIA in the AUR, which is supposedly just to start a Sway session that is a bit more com- well configured for NVIDIA. It uh, one of the guides also suggested to use the Sway Git package instead of the Sway package, because apparently for some reason if you build Sway on your system rather than just downloading a binary, it can perform better with NVIDIA. So I tried Sway Git and it actually started. The one thing that wasn't working properly was my cursor. And when I tried the Sway NVIDIA session, then my cursor worked fine too. So there are no graphical glitches as far as I... I've seen. I haven't tried writing anything uh, that is graphically intensive like games, but uh, I'm running Firefox and it's it's working fine. I haven't tried OBS yet because I haven't managed to get it to work. I know that uh, Brody Robertson had a few videos about Sway and he was able to get OBS to work in Sway, uh, which is through the, the XDG desktop portal WLR, which is a specific portal that is used for Wayland screen sharing. That I managed to get to work uh, screen sharing from Sway to Firefox, but that was not on NVIDIA. So, and I haven't really managed to get it to work with OBS at all. I tried both the uh, Arch package and the Flatpak, but no luck yet. I will, um, I hope to get that working soon. And uh, so this was fairly easy to set up because I just had to download Sway Git and Sway NVIDIA and things just work and I already had a Sway config from my laptop so I just copied that to the desktop and modified it to work with my desktop better so it just works and that's it for our bi-weekly wanderings let's move into Linux innards 
we're talking about licenses this time. To talk about licenses used in software, we must first distinguish between copyright and copyleft. As we will soon discover, most software licenses are a form of copyleft, GPL, etc. A copyright is a type of intellectual property that gives its owners the exclusive right to copy, distribute, adapt, display, and perform a creative work, usually for a limited time. The creative work may be in a literary, artistic, educational, or musical form. Copyright is intended to protect the original expression of an idea in the form of a creative work, but not the idea itself. A copyright is subject to limitations based on public interest considerations, such as the fair use doctrine in the United, such as the fair use doctrine in the United States. Copyrights can be granted by public law and are in that case considered territorial rights. This means that copyrights granted by the law of a certain state do not extend beyond the territory of that specific jurisdiction. Copyrights of this type vary by country. Many countries, and sometimes a large group of countries, have made agreements with other countries on procedures applicable when works cross national borders or national rights are inconsistent. Copyleft, on the other hand, is the practice of granting the right to freely distribute and modify intellectual property with the requirement that the same rights be preserved in derivative works created from that property. Copyleft in the form of licenses can be used to maintain copyright conditions for works ranging from computer software to documents, art, scientific discoveries, and even certain patents. Copyleft is an arrangement where software or artistic work may be used, modified, and distributed freely on condition that anything derived from it is bound by the same conditions. Copyleft software licenses are considered protective or reciprocal in contrast with permissive free software licenses and require that information necessary for reproducing and modifying the work must be made available to recipients of the software program or binaries. This information is most commonly in the form of source code files, which usually contain a copy of the license terms and acknowledge the authors of the code. Notable copyleft licenses include the GNU Public uh, General Public License, GPL, originally written by Richard Stallman, which was the first software copyleft which was the first software copyleft license to see extensive use, the Mozilla Public License, the Free Art License, and the Creative Commons Share Alike License Condition, the last two of which being intended for other forms of intellectual and artistic work, such as documents and pictures. Public Domain The public domain consists of all the creative work to which no exclusive intellectual property rights apply. Those rights may have expired, been forfeited, expressly waived, or may be inapplicable. Such as the polio vaccine, Dr. Salk donated it to the general public and made no money off of that. License limitations. Licensees may distribute derivative works only under a license identical to, not more restrictive than, the license that governs the original work. Without share-alike, derivative works might be sublicensed with compatible but more restrictive license clauses. And we will cover that later. Joe? Oh, is it my turn? That's what it says. Okay, I'm going to be covering the, the GNU, the General Public, the GNU General Public License, the GPL. I was hoping to make the GPL somewhat understandable. It is out of my general purview of things that I know, which is one of the reasons I wanted it for a topic. Stop learning, start dying. 
That being said, evidently there is a reason I am not a copyright lawyer. This is some incomprehensible stuff right here, but I'm going to try any way to give it to you as straightforward as I can. Also, remember, it's very truncated. Um, I did get a lot of this from Wikipedia and some of this directly from the um, GNU GPL website. Um, let's start with some of the general and some of the history of the GPL. Like I said, most of it's from Wikipedia, but um, the GPL, or the General Public License, is a series of free software licenses designed to grant four freedoms in regards to software. These are to run, study, share, and modify the licensed software. And they have a bit of a mission statement. Nobody should be restricted by the software that they use. There are four freedoms that every user should have. The freedom to use the software for any purpose. The freedom to change the software to suit your needs. The freedom to share the software with your friends and neighbors. And the freedom to share the changes that you make. Um, as Moss said, this was originally written by Richard Stallman for the, the GNU project. It is designed so that any derivative work created from the original software will have the same or equivalent license terms, although there are some exceptions. Uh, GPL 1.0 was designed to handle two main ways that software was restricted at the time, which was 1989. The first method of restriction was only releasing binary files, making software non-human readable. Specific requirements um, were placed in the GPL stating that source code must be available so that people could read it and use it for their own devices. The second method of restriction was to add restrictions later, either by attaching it to software on a less permissive license or by adding restrictions to the licensing later on. GPL v1 made it so that if any GPL software was used, then everything had to have the same permissiveness or more as the GPL. That is a summary and an attempt to make it easier to understand. There is a bit more to it there. Um, GPL 2.0, um, this was where the liberty or death clause was added. Um, it says that licenses may, be dis may distribute a GPL-covered work only if they can satisfy all of the license's obligations, despite any other legal obligations they might have. This was added in order to prevent litigation in regards to reducing users' freedoms. Using something with a less permissive license could not sever the obligations of the GPL version 2. Um, now, GPL 3.0, this is where I started getting a headache trying to wrap my noggin around the uh, legal jargon, which is saying a lot considering how version 2 is worded and um, there are different versions of version 2. Now, according to Stallman, the most important changes were in relation to software patents, free software license compatibility, the definition of source code, and hardware restrictions on software modifications, such as using DRM to restrict hardware-level access to the GPL license software, which is called TiVoization, based on what um, TiVo did to prevent people from modifying the GPL software that was on their hardware. Uh, other changes related to internationalization, how license violations are handled, and how additional permissions could be granted by the copyright holder. The concept of software propagation as a term for the copying and duplication of software 
was explicitly defined. Um, V3 improved compatibility with many other software licenses with many stipulations that only worked with V2 if the or later clause was used with the V2 version. Um, the important part for most of our listeners is that anything licensed with the GPL can be used um, internally or privately and modified as needed so long as you have no intent to redistribute what you are using and no need to re-release the source code. If you do sell or distribute, you must include the entire source code so other people have the options of doing the same thing, using and modifying as needed. So the original source code essentially and any modifications that you have made need to be included. Um, There is a lot of legal mumbo jumbo involved with the mixing of software, but it amounts to that it is possible to use more restrictively licensed software with GPL-based software, so long as there is some kind of separation between the two. At least that was my understanding. Um, I.e., the GPL software generates some data that is then stored and picked up by the more restrictive software to use or vice versa. And this is an interpretation, and it could be wrong. Although there is much dispute on what implementations require licensing and what does not, Um, I considered going out into the weeds here and trying to show how different types of linking could be used or not used or how it's interpreted that way, but I think it would be less comprehensible to anyone that is not a programmer. Now, um, an extension, a continuation, a, a different variant is the GNU Lesser General Public License. It's a derivative of the above uh, GPL v2 and is used as a bridge between GPL software and proprietary code. Essentially, only the portions of code or libraries that are covered by the LGPL are required to be available for modification, and if modified and distributed, the new changes also need to be available. And then there's the AGPL, the Afero GPL. Um, Not much I want to say on this other than that it was created to cover the application service provider loophole in the GPL v3 that allows software as a service providers or anything that runs over a network to be exempt from the GPL license since it is not distributed in the traditional sense. This puts the control back into the server owner's hands and makes it so that um, the things that they do are still available to other people. Um, without completely restricting it to themselves. And I I guess that went a little faster than I thought it was going to, considering how much I wrote. But um, Norbert? And there are various other licenses uh, in the Linux space. Uh, GPL is the most uh, known, I guess, or most heard about. But there are other similar licenses that are either non-permissive or permissive. And one of those is the BSD licenses. It's a family of permissive licenses uh, imposing minimal restrictions on the use and distribution of software. And it only requires code to retain the BSD license, not if it's if distributed, and does not require source code to be di- to be distributed. There are two versions that I, that Moss found being the two clause DBSD license and the three clause BSD license. And the first of these clauses is redistribution of code must retain the BSD license notice. Second one is redistribution in binary form must reproduce the BSD copyright notice. So not the code, just the license itself. 
And so this is the two clause BSD license. The difference between this and the three clause BSD license is uh, the additional third clause, which says neither the name of the copyright holder nor the names of its contributors may be used to endorse or promote products derived from this software without specific prior written permission. So basically, if you take a software and redistribute it, that is the two-clause license, you can mention or you can include the name of the original pro project, but not with the three-clause license. There is also the MIT license, uh, which originates from MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. This is also a permissive license. So what actually is a permissive license? Not quite certain. Let me see what the definition of permissive is. A permissive software license, sometimes also called BSD-like or BSD-style license, is a free software license which, instead of copyleft protections, carries only minimal restrictions on how the software can be used, modified, and redistributed, usually including a warranty disclaimer. Examples include the GNU all-permissive license, MIT license, BSD licenses, Apple public source license, and Apache license. As of 2016, the most popular free software license is the permissive MIT license. MIT, the MIT license uh, has only very limited restriction on reuse. And so it has high license compatibility with other licenses. I assume, which is what I, I mentioned. So even proprietary licenses. Basically, it boils down to, quote, permission. Uh, it gives permission to any person obtaining a copy of this software, the rights to use, copy, modify, merge, publish, distribute, sublicense, and or sell copies of and is only subject to the following conditions. The above copyright notice at this permission and this permission notice shall be included in all copies of substantial portions of the software. So is sublicensing what I refer to as changing the license? It changes the license for the other portions, for the portions not yeah, under yeah. the MIT license. Yeah. So basically, if you use the, something that is licensed under G, uh, GPL, you you use it in a project, then the entire new project has to be under GPL, right? But if you take something that is under MIT, then that portion has to be under MIT, but the rest of your project can be under any license you want, even proprietary, is what I'm getting from this. It sounds like it, but we don't know. <laughs> yeah. Joe, did you find anything? All right. So there's also the Apache license, Apache 2.0 license, which is very, very similar to the MIT license. It's also a permissive license. It uh, grants, quote, perpetual, worldwide, non-exclusive, no-change, royalty-free, irrevocable copyright license to reproduce, prepare derivative works of, publicly display, publicly perform, sublicense, and distribute the work and such derivative works in source or object form. Yeah, so basically, uh, large corporations like Microsoft and Apple and Amazon like the MIT license because they can, but they can use that uh, code way more easily than something under the GPL. Okay, so there's also the Apache license, which is very similar to the MIT license. It's also a permissive license but has restrictions about the use of the project's name. Quote, this license does not grant permission to the use to use the trade names, trademarks, service marks, or product names of the licensor, except as required for reasonable and customary use in describing the origin of the work and reproducing the content of the notice file. So basically it's similar to the three clause BSD license. 
And there's also the Mozilla Public License 2.0, which is also free and open source weak copyleft license. What does weak copyleft mean? Well, uh, it's that a, means there's very little protections on it. But I assume more, there's more protection than with the MIT or Apache licenses. It says balance. It is trying to balance uh, the concerns of both open source and proprietary developers. And it is distinguished from others as a middle ground between the permissive software BSD-like licenses and the general public license. So it's more restrictive uh, than the Apache and MIT, but less restrictive as the GPL. It allows the integration flow of MPL licensed code into proprietary code bases, but only on condition those components remain accessible. Accessible as in the Weak code? copy or? left has to do with inheritance. Ah, okay. Right. We also Other less commonly used licenses include Common Development and Distribution License 1.0, CDDL-1.0, Eclipse Public License 2.0, EPL-2.0, CSIL License 2.1, European Union Public License EUPL 1.2, Licence Libre du Québec, which has several versions, and the Mulan Permissive Software License V2. Mulan PSL dash V 2.0. Did I cut you off, Norbert? No, oh, you just gave me less work. Don't worry about that. Okay, sorry about that. And then we have the fun ones the WTFPL. WTFPL is a permissive free software license compatible with the GNU GPL as a public domain like license. The WTFPL is essentially the same as dedication to the public domain. It allows redistribution and modification of the work under any terms. The title is an abbreviation for Do What the F You Want to Public License. Sounds good. <laughs> and then we get to Creative Commons. Uh, CC0 is an unlicensed. Anyone is free to use whatever they like. License limitations are indicated by groups BY, SA, NC, and ND. These terms can be combined, like CC by SA-NC, and there may be version numbers of each. For instance, CC BYSA is currently at 4.0, and there are good reasons not to use 3.0 or earlier. There is a link in the show notes to a Fedora blog. The BY or BY attribution Licensees may copy, distribute, display, perform, and make derivative works and remixes based on it only if they give the author or license or the credits attribution in the manner specified by these. Since version 2.0, all Creative Commons licenses require attribution to the creator and include the buy element. SA share alike. Licensees may distribute derivative works only under a license identical to which means not more restrictive than the license that governs the original work. See also copy left. Without share alike, derivative works might be sublicensed with compatible but more restrictive license clauses, such as CC BY to CC BY-NC. NC, non-commercial. Licensees may copy, distribute, display, perform the work, and make derivative works and remixes based on it only for non-commercial purposes. And ND, no derivatives. 
Licensees may copy, distribute, display, and perform only verbatim copies of the work, not derivative works and remixes based on it. Since version 4.0, derivative works are allowed but must not be shared. All of my song lyrics are licensed under CC by SA 4.0. Most most podcasts are somewhere under the Creative Commons license. Yeah, I I actually had to let uh, Ronnie at Full Circle know about the difference between 3.0 and 4.0, and he has updated all of his licenses to CC by SA 4.0. You really should look at that Fedora blog light item that we have in the show notes. Uh, there are some really good reasons to go with 4.0. We got anything else? That was a really quick entrance, and I think we did cover the topic yeah. pretty well. So It was like five pages long, and we got it done. Woohoo! We might not even have to split this into two shows. That's what exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. All right, let's move on to vibrations. All right, vibrations from the ether. The saga continues from John Wallace, dated June 18th. Hello, Mintcast team. I have installed XFCE as a desktop client on my wife's laptop. In testing, I have found that the file manager is more responsive and faster under XFCE than it is under Cinnamon. However, Julie doesn't like the XFCE desktop. Is there anything that I could try to improve performance in the Cinnamon desktop before resorting to Nuke and Pave? If I were to take the Nuke and Pave route, I would first transfer Julie's LibreOffice documents to a USB hard drive and draw up a reinstallation and reconfiguration plan to follow. Thank you and kind regards, John. Sounds like a job for me. That's a that's a tough one right there. Go for it. Go for it. So on by default on the accessible panel, if you have the plugin that shows the open open windows, you're not able to pin those there like you would be able to do on KDE or Cinnamon or even Windows. But there's the the, the doc like plugin, which I'm not sure if it's in the, uh, the in the repos of the destroyer you're using. You can yeah. just install it. It wasn't in the Fedora repo, so I just I had to compile it from source. And with that, you get a more modern feel for the XSC uh, panel, and you can pin applications. So I would say that is the biggest improvement you can make to just the general feel to the XSC desktop. Yeah, it's... I don't think that'll solve his problem, though, since this is specifically with the performance of the uh, file manager. What uh, I would start out doing is looking to see where the resources go in comparison between XFCE and Cinnamon. I don't think it's Cinnamon specifically because that's still a relatively lightweight desktop, but definitely be like running HTOP or something and then open the file manager in both and see what resources are being used. I know that a few months ago I encountered a memory leak uh, bug on XFC that made the whole system very slow and sluggish. And it was yeah. it, it had to do with the color profile demon of all things. But other than that, XFC, if it's working properly, it's supposed to be more performant than Cinnamon. So I'm not sure what the issue could be. I would also suggest the idea of trying a different file manager and see how that runs. Yes. I know that PC File Man works as well as 
Um, you mean other file managers? PC man. Mm-hmm. But whatever it PC is. PC man yeah. FM, right? Yeah. Okay. PC man FM. Also, a uh, Nemo from Cinnamon. Yeah. Well, try different file managers. See if they run better. But if it's the entire system that feels slow, maybe it's one of those issues that I mean, maybe it's the issue I mentioned. Almost all the file managers are based on Nautilus, so you can pretty much swap them in. Okay. All right. This next one is from Tim Harless. Um, I have been a long-time listener to Mintcast, but here recently I have heard some comments that have troubled me. You see, I use Linux and listen to Linux podcasts to escape the political crap of today's world. I have heard several comments from some hosts, mostly Moss, that would lead me to believe that uh, they have leftist nutcase views. See what I did there? I made it political. I am a conservative and have been ever since I grew up. But I still listen to Mintcast and enjoy it a lot. I'd enjoy it a lot better without political snide remarks that demean listeners like me and other conservatives. Plainly, I do not want to hear either side's views on a Linux podcast. It's really easy to keep political crap out of our Linux world. Opinions, especially political ones, are just like buttholes. Everybody's got one and a lot of them stink. So keep them to yourselves and produce what you guys are good at. An informative, interesting show that everyone can listen to. I look forward to listening to future episodes without political remarks and hope that you will take my suggestions into consideration. If not, it was good while it lasted. As I type this on Linux Mint Cinnamon 20.3, I'll tell you that I thoroughly enjoy LM and have so since I first found it and switched to it from Windows. Good day, kind sirs. Moss, do you want to read your response here? Because I really don't want to state my opinion. I am sorry to have offended you, Tim. I will say that what is called conservative today is not what was called conservative when I was younger, so I suppose I seem leftist by today's U.S. standards. But Linux is about freedom, and in my opinion, freedom, like Linux, is for everybody. Yeah. You can't really be open source without it being at least somewhat political, sadly. But um, also, we try to limit our political opinions to the off-week Saturday shows if they sometimes leak into the main show. It's not on purpose, but honestly, we're not going to, you know, stifle our opinions just because it's a Linux show. We're going to bring who we are to this show. And we've got a couple comments from Discord. Rodzilla360, he says, Been catching up on my podcast listening and holy mintcast, Batman! George was a great idea. I'm on Fedora 36, but thinking of giving Silver Blue a go. I forget what he said about using GNOME extensions. To use or not to use RPM OS tree. Do you yeah. remember, Joe? George was great to have on. and No, I don't remember what he said about that either. Uh, GNOME has never been my thing, so neither is GNOME extensions. And from Londoner, 
For info, you may have noticed that the Update Manager Mint update has gone from 5.8.1 to 5.8.4 with three updates in the last three days. This is because of a bug where automatic update was enabled by 5.8.2 or 5.8.3. The latest version, 5.8.4, fixes the bug, and there is a link in the show notes to read the Linux Mint GitHub update on that. Okay, let's move into Check This Out. Uh, The June Full Circle Magazine. All that and even Fedora. You should check that out. Uh, I'm obviously affiliated with Full Circle. It's about the only place in the world that my name follows Mark Shuttleworth. That seems to be all we have. Anything else, Norbert? I've got nothing this time. Okay. So, housekeeping announcements. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mintcast. If you see something you'd like to hear about, tell us. Send us email at mintcast at gmail.org. Join us live on YouTube. Post at the Mintcast subreddit. Chat with us on Telegram, Discord, Facebook, or post directly at https colon slash slash mintcast.org. Our next episode will be 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Sunday, July 10th, 2022. And we have a link in the show notes to get that converted to your time zone. Our next live stream will be 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Saturday, July 2nd. And again, the link in the show notes to convert that. And live stream information is at mintcast.org slash livestream. So where can we find you, Joe? Well, you can catch me on a couple of my other podcasts. Um, I haven't been on Tilts in two weeks, but I will be on this Wednesday's show. And that's uh, tlts.org. I'm also on the Linux Lugcast, which you can find at linuxlugcast.com. Um, you can send me an email, jb at mintcast.org, or you can use my Kofi link and buy me a coffee. Boss. Okay. You can find me at Full Circle Weekly News, Distro Hopper's Digest. Email is bardmoss at pm.me. And all my other information can be found at itsmoss.com. Bill wasn't able to be with us today, but you can find him. Email is wchauser3 at gmail.com. He's bill underscore h on Discord. He's at wchauser3 on Twitter and wchauser3 on Facebook. And also check out his podcast, Three Fat Truckers, with a link in the show notes. Norbert? You can find me, you can send me an email at norbert at mincast.org, and I made a mastodon, but I forgot my username, so I will not say, but we'll cut it out. Okay, so just the email. We'll, we'll get that next episode. Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> And Nishant wasn't with us today, but you can reach him at nishant at mintcast.org, at RyconGhost on Instagram, at RyconGhost at GitHub, Ghost.Rycon on Discord, Maverick00783 at Steam. He, he pronounces it Recon. He does? Okay. Before we leave, we want to make sure to acknowledge some of the people who make Mintcast possible. A cast of thousands for our audio editing, including Norbert, Londoner, Tony Hughes, and others. 
We continue to need volunteers for our audio editing. Please contact us. Bill Hauser and Josh Lowe for their work on the website, and Bill Hauser for hosting the Linode, which runs our website. Hobstar for our logo, InitRD for the animated Discord logo, Londoner for our time sinks, archive.org for hosting our audio files, and the Linux Mint development team for the fine distro we love to talk about. Thanks, 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 Clem. Clem. And Co. This has been another episode of the Mintcast podcast. The show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. You can follow both Mintcast and Linux Mint on Twitter, at Mintcast and at Linux underscore Mint. Thanks to Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com for our theme music, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Mintcast.